Welcome. You're listening to The Analytic Christian, where we explore topics in Christian philosophy and theology. I'm Jordan, and today I'm joined for a second time by Dr. Thomas Bogardus, a professor of philosophy at Pepperdine University. Last week, Dr. Bogardus explained some of the views on the mind-body problem, and he defended one view in particular, dualism. In this episode, Dr. Bogardus is going to offer some arguments to show that dualism actually points to theism. When you put last episode and this episode together, I think you get a pretty strong argument for the existence of God from consciousness. So I'm excited to jump in. Let's begin. All right, well, I think it would be good to start by making sure we're all on the same page with respect to the views that we're discussing here. Um, When we say dualism, what do we mean? So I think it might be best to start by explaining what um, reductive materialism is and then contrast the kinds of dualism with that. So according to reductive materialism, um, you just are your body or maybe some part of your body like a brain. So when it comes to things, reductive materialism says there's only one thing there. You are the same thing as your body or your brain. And reductive materialism says when it comes to mental properties or mental states, things like sensations, thoughts, desires, beliefs, etc., um, those just are the same as me- uh, material properties or material states, physical properties, physical states. So for example, the sensation of pain or the experience of pain, um, according to reductive materialism, or at least one version of it, that property, that sensation um, is just the same as a certain kind of physical or material property, a certain kind of physical or material state. Uh, maybe it's some sort of brain state. Um, Like for example, I mean, maybe we could call it C-fibrous firing. Maybe that would be the neurophysiological description of this neural correlate of pain. According to reductive materialism, that's the same state. That's the same property. Pain just is that brain state. At least that's one version of reductive materialism. Um, You might complain and say, well, these don't really seem the same. They seem like two different properties, two different states. Maybe you'd say the same with respect to persons and bodies or persons and brains. They don't really seem the same. Minds and bodies seem a little different. Um, The reductive materialist will use examples like water and H2O, Superman and Clark Kent. Here we have true cases of identity, even though, like, for example, Superman and Clark Kent don't seem the same. They seem quite different. Um, But really, it's the same guy. I shouldn't say they seem different because there's only one guy there. Um, Superman flies around and wears a cape. Clark Kent is kind of nerdy and works as a reporter. Seems like there's two different guys there, but really it's just one. So that's what reductive materialism says about mental properties and material properties and um, your body and you. Okay, property dualism agrees with the identity claim about you. You just are your body or some part of your body like a brain. But property dualism disagrees with reductive materialism when it comes to mental properties. Um, They say sensations are one thing, brain states are something else. These are not the same state, not the same property. Um, Although, according to property dualism, both of these properties, these are both features of the brain. And so in this way, it's sort of like smoke, fire, and wood. So smoke is caused by fire, but it's not the same thing as fire. So similarly, 
going into a certain kind of brain state will cause you to feel pain. Pain emerges from that brain state. Pain results from that brain state. This is the kind of language property dualists use, um, but they're distinct. Yet there's only one thing in the case of the fire, it's wood. Wood is both on fire and producing the smoke. Um, similarly, the property dualist will say, there's just one thing here, your brain that has both of these features, the pain and the brain state, the neural property. Okay, so that's property dualism. There's a dualism of properties on that view, but not of things. Substance dualism agrees with property dualism when it comes to that dualism of properties. They say, yeah, pain is one thing, C fibers firing is something else. Pain is not identical to any physical or material state or property. Um, so they agree with the property dualists about that. Substance dualists are dualists about properties here. Um, but substance dualists are also dualists when it comes to substances or what we've been calling things. So when it comes to you and your body or you and your brain, these are distinct. They're not the same thing. You are not identical to any material object. Um, you're not identical to your body or any part of your body like a brain. Um, so substance dualists will typically say, although you are distinct from your body, you stand in a really close, intimate relationship to your body. Um, there's this two-way causal connection. So it's something like the relationship between a driver and a car or a pilot and a ship, although these analogies are not perfect. Um, but just as a driver and a car are different, distinct, yet they stand in this two-way causal connection, similarly with you and your body, according to substance dualism. When I pinch my arm, my mind feels pain. Um, when I will to move my arm, woof, there it goes. So we've got this two-way causal connection on substance dualism. Sometimes put in a kind of derogatory way, oh, you substance dualists believe that there's a ghost in the machine. So that's why I use this little Pac-Man ghost here. But it's all right for me to do that because I myself am a substance dualist, so I can have a little fun at my own expense here. Okay, so um, I'm assuming that you've already gotten reasons to believe that dualism is true. And then we're asking, how do you get from dualism to theism? So I'll just briefly share, like my favorite arguments for property dualism are the knowledge arguments. And then um, there are different kinds of modal arguments, arguments from possibility for property dualism. Um, when it comes to substance dualism, um, my favorite arguments have to do with uh, personal identity um, how could it be that one person persists through time and change so that when you look at like a picture of your younger self, you can truly say, that's me, that was me. How could that literally be you um, if you've changed your qualities so much? Um, there must be something underlying the changes. So there's arguments like that um, for substance dualism. And then there's also certain kinds of modal arguments for substance dualism. But um, going to resist the temptation to get into those and just assume that you have been convinced of dualism. What, what next? You know, what happens next? Um, how do you get from dualism to theism? Can you get from dualism to theism? Well, I don't think dualism um, of either variety, property or substance dualism, entails theism. It's metaphysically possible, broadly logically possible, um, for dualism to be true, but theism to be false. Nevertheless, I think that dualism provides strong evidence for theism. 
it would be very surprising, I think, for either one of those versions of dualism to be true um, if there's no God. And um, just real quick, one line of evidence for this is if you check the experts, people who think about these issues a lot, um, you'll find that there's a correlation between certain views here. So here on my screen, you can see um, the results of the Phil Papers survey. Last time they did this survey, I think in 2012, they're redoing it now. So it'll be interesting to see the results from the most recent version. But back when they did it in 2012, they found um, a really high correlation between non-naturalism and non-physicalism. So if you're not a naturalist when it comes to metaphilosophy, um, you tend not to be a physicalist when it comes to the mind. Also, here's another interesting and pretty strong correlation. There's a correlation um, between physicalists, philosophers who accept physicalism, and atheism. So those tend to go together nicely, at least in the minds of um, the philosophers who answered this survey, 931 target faculty. So that's some evidence that philosophers are picking up on a sort of tension between dualism and atheism. Atheism and physicalism kind of go nicely together. It's like peanut butter and jelly. Um, dualism and atheism don't fit so nicely together. So what we'll try to figure out um, today is why is that and how surprising would dualism be on atheism? Okay, so I think what we're asking here is um, how should I update my confidence in theism if I become convinced of dualism? So I've got a certain confidence level in theism, maybe it's really high, maybe it's really low, and now we're supposing you have become convinced of dualism. What should happen to your confidence in theism? What should happen? We're not asking what will happen, but what should happen? Um, so philosophers have a pretty firm grasp on this phenomenon. Um, and my understanding, my impression is um, the dominant view is that um, Bayes' theorem tells us what to do how to update our confidence in some belief if we get new evidence. So let me explain how that works. So if we're wondering um, how do I, what should my new confidence in some thesis be, in some theory, what should it be if I get new evidence? We're asking what should my posterior probability in this hypothesis be? So posterior because it's after you've received new evidence. So what Bayes' theorem says is, Oh, if you want to figure out what that is, what your new confidence ought to be, you should figure out what your prior probability was um, of that hypothesis conditional on or given that evidence. That's what this little straight line means, conditional on or given that piece of evidence. Okay, so I think a picture will help explain um, what this means. So Bayes' theorem says, if you want to calculate the posterior probability of some hypothesis, check this conditional prior probability. And they have a little way of figuring this out. They say, if you wanna know this conditional probability, do this, <laughs> find the ratio of the prior probability that the hypothesis is true and the evidence obtains or is true, divide that by the prior probability that you would have gotten this evidence. Okay, let's look at this picture. This picture will help. So um, this rectangle represents uh, the space of what is possible to you, given your evidence um, at some time. So how could the world be, given your evidence? We'll capture all of those possibilities in this rectangle. So your evidence rules out some possibility. 
some possibilities. Presumably you have evidence that um, the earth is round, so all the possibilities in which it's flat are excluded from this rectangle. This rectangle just contains all the things that are consistent with um, the evidence you actually have. Okay, now the scenarios in which some hypothesis is true will in most cases, or at least in many cases, just be a subset of all the possible scenarios, all the scenarios that are possible. If you wanted to know, well, what should my confidence in this hypothesis be? It'll just be a simple ratio. What's the ratio of the area covered by this circle, all the scenarios in which the hypothesis is true? What's the ratio of that area to the total area? That's your confidence that the hypothesis is true. If you're really confident, then the hypothesis takes up like most or all of the rectangle. If you think the hypothesis is pretty unlikely, it just takes up a small area of all the possibilities. Okay, and you could similarly ask yourself, how likely do I think it would be that I'd encounter this sort of evidence before you get the evidence? And that too will be just probably a subset of all the possibilities. But now suppose you learn this evidence is in fact true. Well, that means what you've learned is a lot of these possibilities are not in fact possible. The only genuine possibilities are the ones consistent with this evidence. So now instead of having that rectangle capturing all the possibilities for you, all the ways the world could be from your perspective, this little circle E now captures all the ways the world could be from your perspective. So whereas the previous probability of hypothesis H was the ratio of H to the whole rectangle, now, according to this little formula we have here, if you want to know how likely the hypothesis is now, you find the ratio of this um, colored in area, this yellow area, to the whole area, the whole region of circle E. Okay, and that's what this um, numerator is telling us. Find um, the probability of um, situations where the hypothesis is true and the evidence obtains, that's this, the overlap between circle H and circle E, divide that by the total area of circle E. So what fraction of circle E is taken up by this colored in area? That's your new probability, your new confidence in um, this hypothesis, given your evidence. Okay, so even that was pretty abstract. Here's a nice concrete case to help seal the deal. Um, so suppose you roll a fair die, but then I cover it before you can see the results. And I ask you, um, how likely is it that this um, die came up six? So it's a normal die, six sides, numbered one through six. What are the odds it came up six? It's a fair die as well. Okay, so easy. It's one out of six, right? Um, so that's your prior probability that the die came up six. Um, so we've got all the possibilities represented by this rectangle, just like on the previous slide. The subset of um, those possibilities that are consistent, that are my hypothesis, the six hypothesis, that's just a little subset of the total rectangle and it's one sixth of the area. So that's why the probability is one out of six. But now suppose I give you some new evidence. I peek at it and I say, it's greater than three, it's four, five, or six. It's four, five, or six. So now you've gotten some new evidence. That means you can eliminate some possibilities. So you can eliminate that it's one, two, or three. So now in light of this new evidence, what should your posterior probability be? Well, um, we'll use this little formula, but you can just do it in your head. You realize, okay, well, um, the region of space occupied by my hypothesis here is one third of all the remaining possibilities. 
So this is an easy example we can do it in our heads. But just for fun, let's look at this um, mathematical formula here. So what um, Bayes' theorem tells us is if you want to figure this out, if you want to know your new confidence in um, the hypothesis, then find this conditional probability. And we'll use this formula to do that. So in our case, the hypothesis is that the die came up six. And the evidence is it was four, five, or six. It was four through six. It was one of those. So if we want to know what should my new confidence be that it's six, we should find this prior probability. OK, and then this version of Bayes' theorem says to do that, find this fraction, solve this fraction. OK, so let's do that. Let's think about these two terms in the fraction. What is the probability that um, the die came up six and four through six? Well, there's only one way for the die to come up six and four through six. It's got to be six. So that's one out of six. There was one way for that to happen with our prior probability before we got the new evidence. Now ask, prior to getting that new evidence, what was the probability that it was four through six? So prior to getting the new evidence, think about all six possibilities. What are the odds that it would be four through six? Well, those are half of the possibilities. So that goes in the denominator here. One sixth divided by one half, when you divide by a fraction, multiply by the reciprocal, you get two sixths or one third. Okay, but for our purposes now, kind of circling back to um, dualism and theism, I suggest that we use this equivalent version of Bayes' theorem. So it looks a little more complicated, um, but notice there are only three products here that we need to figure out, and two of them are the same. So I've got this purple product here. I circled it in purple, or I put this purple outline around it. And then we've got this red product here. This is an equivalent um, formulation of Bayes' theorem. Um, to give you some evidence that it really is equivalent, let's see it get the right answer here in this little simple sample case with the die. So in order to solve this version of Bayes' theorem, we just need to figure out what the purple product is equal to and what the red product is equal to. And then it's just some simple arithmetic. So the purple product in our case would say, hey, what are the odds that you would have gotten this evidence? That's proposition B here. What are the odds that you would have gotten this evidence that the die is four through six um, conditional on um, the fact that it's a six. So supposing it was a six, what are the odds that it would be four through six? And then we multiply that by the prior probability that it's six. So what is the prior probability that it would be four through six given that it's six? Well, if it's six, then it's definitely 100% four to six. So that's just one, that's certain. What's the prior probability that it's six? Well, one out of six. Okay, so the purple product is just one out of six. What about this red product? Well, in our case, what we need to figure out is what's the prior probability that it would be four through six, given that it's not six, given that it's not six, and then multiply that by the prior probability that it's not six. Well, what are the odds that it would be four through six um, before we got that new evidence? What were the odds that it would be four through six, given that it's not six? Well, there's only two ways for it to be four through six. If it's not six, it's got to be four or five. And those would be two of the five possibilities. Could be one, two, three, four, five. The only way it could be four through six is four through five. So that's two out of five. What's the probability, the prior probability that's not six? Well, there's five ways for it to be not six um, out of six possibilities. So it's five out of six. 
Again, when you multiply by a fraction, or sorry, we're not dividing, just multiply straight across and you get one third. Um, okay, so now we can solve this formulation of Bayes' theorem up here. It's just one sixth divided by one sixth plus one third. Okay, one sixth plus one third is three sixths. Divide by a fraction, multiply by the reciprocal, and you get one third. Okay, so this is an equivalent formulation of Bayes' theorem. Um, Let's think about how we would use it in the current case with dualism and theism. So to solve this version of Bayes' theorem, we just need three terms. It looks really complicated, but you really just need three terms. You need these three terms. Um, why don't you need this term over here, the prior probability of not A? Well, if you know the prior probability of A, then if you just subtract that from one, you get the prior probability of not A. So if we know the prior probability of A, we can figure out the prior probability of not A. Okay, and then these over here are just repeats of these terms. So we just need these three terms. And in our case, now filling in for A and B, what these terms would mean is we need the prior probability of theism. And then we need to think about how likely is dualism to be true given that theism is true? That's this yellow term. And also we need to figure out how likely is dualism to be true given that atheism is true? What are the odds? How surprising is dualism on atheism? And this yellow term is how surprising is dualism on theism? Okay, so um, I think I can help shed a little light on what sort of values we should put in here. And then once we plug in values for these three terms, Bayes' theorem will tell us what rationality requires of us. So that's kind of cool. Um, and you can use this um, calculator at the website gigacalculator.com, if you look for Bayes' theorem calculator, then you can fill in what A is and what B is. In our case, it's theism and dualism. And then you just fill in values for these three terms, hit the calculate button, and the internet tells you what rationality demands of you. Okay, so feel free to go there and you can plug in different values and see what Bayes' theorem says. So let me give you some examples and Maybe we can walk through um, what to put in for these values. So here are the three values we need to come up with. Now, the first one is sort of the easiest one, but it's one that I can't really help you with um, because it's asking um, before you became, became convinced of dualism, um, how sure were you of theism? What was your confidence in theism? So I'm imagining that you're sort of wondering like, hey, I became convinced of dualism. How should I change my confidence in theism? So we have not yet adjusted our confidence in theism. So now you can just reflect and ask yourself, how confident am I that theism is true? Before I take on this new evidence of dualism, how confident am I in theism? So again, you need to supply that value. Maybe you're a hardcore atheist, so you're gonna give that a very low value. Maybe you're only 5% sure that theism is true. 95% sure that it's false. Um, or maybe you're an agnostic of the variety that's right on the fence and you say it's a 50-50 shot, um, then you should put in 50% for the probability of theism. Or maybe you're kind of a wavering theist, you're a theist but not super confident, so maybe you put 70% in there. Or maybe you're a hardcore theist, you put in like 95%, 99%, whatever. Um, you need to fill in the value for the prior probability of theism. Um, but I think I can help you with these next two terms. And really, this is like the crux of the argument from dualism to theism, what we're going to put in for these two values. So let's think, what should we put in for this value? What is the prior probability of dualism conditional on theism? 
In other words, how surprising would dualism be on the supposition that theism is true? So if we're supposing that theism is true, to what degree do we expect dualism to be true? Well, here are some considerations. Um, theism flat out entails dualism about mental and physical properties. So that half of property dualism, the property dualism part of property dualism is entailed by theism. Um, so that's some reason to think that at least dualism about properties is not at all surprising if theism is true. Um, why is it entailed? Well, it's entailed because um, at least on this understanding of theism, where God is an immaterial mind, an immaterial thinking thing, if God shares some of our mental properties, um, and if he could share maybe all of our mental properties, um, then that shows that those mental properties cannot be identical to any physical or material property because God could have those mental properties, but he doesn't have any physical properties. So we get a kind of modal argument here for um, dualism of properties. So that part of dualism, both property and substance dualism is not at all surprising um, if God exists. So theism doesn't entail substance dualism when it comes to the substance dualist claim that you are distinct from your body. I don't think that's entailed by um, theism. God could have made, perhaps, um, could have brought about a world where property dualism is true. We just got the dualism of properties, but not a dualism of substances. Um, but I think that substance dualism is not at all surprising on, um, on theism. But here's the bit of evidence that I suggest that um, theists who want to use this argument focus on. Um, I think that theists who want to use this argument to support theism should focus on laws that are connecting brains and minds, psychophysical laws, they're sometimes called. So here's something that we observe about the actual universe. We observe that um, the sort of parameters that govern our existence allow for a flourishing, coherent mental life. Not everybody has a flourishing, coherent mental life, but um, the conditions are right for a flourishing, coherent mental life. We're not constantly suffering from like um, schizophrenia or um, we're not consciously flipping at, we're not constantly flipping in and out of consciousness. Um, so I'll talk a little bit more about these laws in a second, but that's the sort of bit of evidence that I think theists should focus on. Um, and I think if you focus on that bit of evidence and ask yourself, how likely is it that we would see laws connecting minds and brains that allow for flourishing, coherent mental lives? That's not at all surprising on theism. So I recommend or I suggest that you could conservatively, conservatively put this value at like 60%. If you put it at 50%, that would mean it's sort of a toss up. Like maybe God would do that, maybe he wouldn't, I don't know. So I say, um, let's go a little bit north of 50% because if God were to create conditions that allowed for flourishing coherent mental lives, um, supposing dualism is true, that would not be at all surprising. Um, so I think 60% is a conservative estimate. Now, um, let's think a little bit more about these laws and whether they would be surprising if there's no God. Well, let's think about those psychophysical laws. I say that if property dualism is true, then um, in order for us to have coherent, flourishing mental lives, there would need to be very improbable, very fortunate psychophysical laws. So those laws, if there's a dualism of properties, would have this form. 
when a brain goes into a certain kind of state, then there emerges or there is produced um, a certain kind of sensation or thought or desire or belief. So there'll be conditionals linking mental or material states to mental states. Um, now think about how these laws actually are. So actually, um, whenever my brain goes into the neural correlate of pain, maybe it's C-fibers firing, pain is experienced, pain is produced, pain emerges every time. That happens every time. Um, and similarly for my thoughts and my beliefs and my desires, I've got this nice regularity when it comes to brain states and mental states. And it at least creates the conditions for a flourishing, consistent, coherent mental life. Of course, I could mess that up by like taking drugs or whatever, um, but the conditions are at least there that would allow for a flourishing, coherent mental life. Okay, now think of all the ways that could have gone wrong. Think of all the many ways the psychophysical laws could have been that would not have allowed for a flourishing, coherent mental life. So it could have been, let me just name a few and then you'll see how easily this could have gone wrong. It could have been that when brains go in the C-fibers firing, that state, um, that actually produces the taste of banana or it produces an experience, a visual experience of just uniform red or it produces nothing at all, no conscious experience at all. So think of all the possibilities that C-fibers firing could have produced. Think of all the ways um, it could have sort of gone wrong. And then also with regard to regularity, we sort of take for granted that C-fibers firing will always be associated with pain, but that could have been different. It could have varied radically um, and wildly so that on Mondays, C-fibers firing produces pain, but on Tuesdays, it produces the taste of banana. Wednesdays, it produces um, a smell of skunk or whatever. <laughs> Thursdays, Thursdays, an off day, produces nothing at all. Um, and so on. Or it could have varied from minute to minute, hour to hour. It could have varied radically, wildly, could have been totally irregular. Now, none of that would have allowed for a coherent, flourishing mental life. So I think that when you consider all the ways the psychophysical laws could have been, you'll realize that only a tiny subset of those allow for a flourishing, coherent mental life. So the fact that we find ourselves in there, if dualism is true, um, that would require psychophysical laws that are super surprising if there's no God. We start suspecting design, starts looking a lot like design. And this might remind you of like the design argument, um, a kind of fine tuning argument. And I think that's basically what this is. <laughs> it's just another instance of fine tuning, um, but it's a pretty dramatic, impressive example of fine tuning. If dualism is true, property or substance, um, a universe allowing for flourishing, coherent mental lives would require quite a lot of fine tuning. That's basically what we're saying here. So um, how surprising would that be if there were no God, if there were no designer? I'd say pretty surprising. And I think it's probably like astronomically small, this, um, this number. Um, maybe astronomically small is not the right example because astronomers usually work with very large numbers. So. I don't know who, if you're doing like quantum physics, it's quantum physically small, <laughs> the sort of values that you see in quantum physics. It's a very, it should be a very, very small number. So I think conservatively, we could put it at 1%, but probably it's way smaller. Um, so that's if you just become convinced about a dualism of properties. 
What if you become convinced of a full-blown substance dualism? Well, then the probability you associate with this term should be even smaller because if substance dualism is true and we find ourselves in a world that allows for flourishing coherent mental lives, you're gonna need those psychophysical laws, which we just decided were pretty unlikely if atheism is true. Plus, we're gonna need very improbable, very fortunate laws connecting minds and bodies. So not laws connecting mental or material states, physical states to mental properties. We will, in addition to those, need laws connecting bodies and minds if substance dualism is true. The laws would have this form. When this body travels to that side of the room, this mind goes with it. Um, and when your body travels wherever you're going, your mind goes with it. And our minds never switch bodies in the kind of weird Freaky Friday situation. That doesn't happen. And my mind doesn't just wander off into the atmosphere for, for a few hours and come back. Um, and my mind doesn't just disappear for a few hours um, and then come back online. So um, when you think of, again, of all the ways these laws connecting bodies and minds could have been, you'll realize that only a tiny little subset of those allow for flourishing coherent mental lives. So if substance dualism is true, we'll need finely tuned psychophysical laws and finely tuned laws connecting minds and bodies. So I think conservatively, again, we could put that at like half a percent, 0.5%. Okay, so now um, let's use Bayes' theorem to see what rationality requires of us. And we can plug in a few sample values to see what the calculator says. So let's think, first of all, of this sort of situation. Let's suppose we become convinced of a dualism of properties. And let's say we're dealing with a pretty hardcore atheist who's 5% sure that theism is true, 95% sure that atheism is true. So we'll put 5% in here for this value. Um, we say that dualism, either of the property form or the substance form, isn't super surprising on theism. It's somewhat expected. So conservatively, we put 60% in there. And now what are the odds of let's deal with property dualism? Um, suppose we become convinced only of a dualism of properties. So we put 1% in here for the probability of dualism on atheism. Oh, this little symbol, by the way, means not. Should have mentioned that earlier, um, but you probably picked up on that already. This little garden hoe sign means not. Um, okay, so if you put in those values, hit the calculate button, uh, the gods of mathematics tell us that rationality requires us to go from 5% confidence in theism to almost 76% confidence in theism. So pretty squarely in the theist camp. So even a pretty hardcore atheist should become a theist in light of this evidence using these conservative values. Imagine if you put like more realistic, um, more ambitious values in there. Okay, let's think about um, substance dualism. So we put half a percent in there. Now the hardcore atheist, according to Bayes' theorem, should become 86% confident that theism is true. So that's pretty powerful evidence to move somebody from pretty hardcore atheism to squarely in the theist camp, quite confident that theism is true. Okay, let's think about an agnostic. We'll put 50% in here for the prior probability of theism. Suppose an agnostic becomes convinced just of a dualism about properties, not a dualism of substances, just dualism of properties. So we put 60% in here for this value, 1% for this value, hit calculate. And then boom, the agnostic needs to go from 50% confident that God exists to near certainty that God exists, which is pretty wild. 
98% sure that God exists. Okay, um, I'm going to skip the theist stuff. Uh, let's just imagine the agnostic becomes convinced of a full-blown dualism of substances, dualism of properties and substances. Well, then Bayes' theorem requires 99% confidence in theism. So as I said, um, let's skip the wavering theist stuff. I think you can see that if you start out as a theist and you get this evidence, obviously you're going to become super certain that God exists in light of this evidence. Let's think about a really hardcore atheist. So like 1% sure that um, theism is true, 99% sure that atheism is true. Using these conservative values, supposing the atheist becomes convinced of substance dualism, um, rationality requires going past agnosticism into slight confidence that theism is true. So even a very hardcore atheist should be moved quite a bit on the, on the scale here past agnosticism into um, theism territory. That concludes my episode with Dr. Bogardis. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please consider leaving a review on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. Also, if you value the work that I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron. By becoming a patron, you're actually helping me to, to be able to devote more of my time to creating content like this. You can become a patron just by going to the link in the description of this video. Also, make sure you listen in next week because we'll be starting a three-episode series on the moral argument. So be looking forward to that. All right, that concludes this episode. Thanks everyone for listening and thank you to all of my patrons.